Only God could rescue me. Only God could set me free. Only God. Only God. Only God. Hello, welcome to Only God Rescued Me, my journey from satanic ritual abuse. I'm Lisa Meister, your host, and I am very happy to have with us today Amy Nord Hughes. Welcome, Amy. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to have you. You are the author of a memoir that is very disturbing. So going to put trigger warnings all over the place, but it's very important. And I'm so glad you wrote this to share it because you're a victim of therapist abuse. Yes. He was also a church elder at my church. He was also a psychiatrist. And and this gets very, very fascinating because you are not an SRA survivor, you have dissociated parts or he treated you like you had dissociated parts? Treated me as if I had dissociated parts. Okay. So did you think that you did? No. Okay. So it gets so convoluted and so interesting. Can you tell us your story? Yes. And like you said, it is a lot. So I will try to summarize, but I sought out the counseling just to work on lingering depression really from childhood sexual abuse that I'd never been able to get rid of and parenting and my marriage, things like that. And he came highly recommended uh, through my church. And so I start seeing him in 2013 and I had a huge father figure void in my life. And so he, you know, predators will um, stick out your voids and then they will attempt to fill them. And so I always describe this as being given a taste of a drug because you're not really realizing that it's happening. But when these deep-seated needs start to get met, like when he started to fill that role, that just felt so good. And I felt so attached and I needed that. I needed more of that. I did not know that he was grooming me clearly at all until I got out a year later. The first red flag that I noticed was in December of 2013. However, now I know the grooming started from day one. So from April to December, I didn't think anything really sinister or really out of the ordinary was happening. I know now he did things on day one. For example, predators will need to figure out a way to invade your personal space. And they do that right away so that it isn't shocking later. In other words, they'll usually give big displays of affection. Like he would always hug me Sunday after church, you know, in front of everybody. And the first session that I went to see him, he got an Afghan out of the cupboard and in a goofy way, kind of acted like, oh, does this one match your clothing or does this one? And then came over and covered me up with it. Now, no ethical therapist would do that, but was the act that big of a deal? Not really. And the problem is with grooming is that you don't, link the red flags together. So when you decide that one wasn't really that big of a deal, he's just joking around. He was just trying to put me at ease. You know, then you forget about it. And when the next one happens, you don't realize there's a pattern, if that makes sense. But in December, he offered to rub my shoulders or my feet for a Christmas present. And I panicked. Didn't think no was an option. I wish it was. I really feel like when we're abused as children, no is removed as an acceptable option. And at the same time, in these moments, I always freeze. 
I just freeze. And in my mind, I'm thinking, just pick one, just pick one, just pick one, just get it up. We just do something. It's so awkward. And so I, I picked shoulders. And the minute he touched my, came over and sat next to me and started to touch my shoulder, I said, or feet, feet. And he went back and and I forced myself to allow him to rub my feet and try to do therapy as if that was completely normal. It was mortifying. But in time, I decided it meant that I was more special. It meant he was more relaxed with me. He was really more like a father figure by that point. He was probably doing it because I mentioned I love having foot rubs when I was a kid. And it's not that big of a deal. I filed it away as I kind of overreacted. It is a little weird, but he was coming from a good place. Because, you know, when we aren't sociopaths, we can't see through that lens. So everything that they do, we are interpreting it through our lens. And our lens or my lens would say, he's just kidding. He means well. He was probably just trying to help you relax. You're probably overreacting. And, you know, when I got out, I thought I was so horrified and mad at myself. But I thought, you know what? I'm glad I don't think that way. I'm glad I give people the benefit of the doubt. And it does make me more vulnerable. Yes. But I would never want to be able to relate to a human being like that. It is amazing, too, how you can, because of the abuse in the background, look at things you wouldn't want and talk yourself into why it must be okay. What do you mean? Because we would say, I really don't want this to happen, but it must be okay that it's happening. Exactly. Even though I'm uncomfortable with it. Exactly. Because we think and we give people that have more education than us, that are older than us, that have positions of power over us, we assume that, you know, they're making wise decisions that have our best interests at heart. Or they're and, normal because they weren't abused. Yeah. So they know how to look at it and we don't. Exactly. And that is what is so dangerous about childhood abuse. And I talk about it so much in my book. We are taught that we just don't have the worth that regular people do. Therefore, we have a different set of rules that we have to play by. It's just how it is that we ended up defective. So we don't have the right to tell a doctor, a church elder that they're wrong and we're right. Even when I knew he was hurting me at the end, I didn't think I had the right to even report him and get him in trouble. Like, who am I to do that? So, yeah, I didn't realize until I was going through this how low my self-esteem still was. And I kind of talk about those old rules in the book of why I'm allowing this, why I'm, how I can rationalize this kind of stuff as it's happening. And then as I heal at the end, I come up with a new set of rules. And those were really fun to, you know, watch develop. And as I, I loved, healed. And I loved your rules because they really helped to understand, number one, why the abuse in your mind happened. Because it makes sense that it happened. It makes sense to someone who was sexually abused that it was going to continue because of there were not rules for you to protect yourself ever growing up. There just weren't. So if somebody was not sexually abused, they would look at it at what happened to you and say, it makes no sense. 
But as your rules are there to look at throughout the book, it's a beautiful way for you to show the people that that didn't happen to. These were the rules that I had to play by. I had to play by these rules. The cards we were dealt, right? Yeah. So it was a brilliant way for you to show why it happened the way it happened. I loved how you did that. It was powerful. And it, it was a real compliment when people that don't understand being taken advantage of could read it and say, I, I kind of get it. Because like you said, it is hard to grasp if you haven't had that in your background. Now, you can be manipulated and not have sexual abuse in your background. But I do believe that it makes us more vulnerable. And abusers know that the shame will keep us quiet. Shame is the silencer. And you can imagine when you are young, you already feel shame with sexual abuse. You can imagine how you feel when you're an adult and you have the intellect, but yet emotionally, you don't really know how to explain why you stayed so long. So the shame is just crushing. And, you know, early before I gained healing, to tell on the abuser felt like telling on myself. Because even though I didn't want what happened, and even though none of it was my idea, abusers will lure you into your own abuse process. For example, he would use things that I shared in therapy then against me. So like, oh, I had to, he wanted me to imagine myself at uh, ages where there was a significant trauma. So I I was talking about a three-year-old, myself at three and how um, my father had taken my blanket that I loved and slept with every night and thrown it away and how I wanted her to have a room full of blankets, kind of kidding, but, you know, kind of serious. So the next week I show up and he has a brand new blanket just for me that he's going to keep in his desk drawer just for me. Well, was that my idea? Well, no, but yet I would plant the seed. So that's what they do. It's really sneaky. So you're just, you're really confused um, as to your role. And so, and you're embarrassed about staying so long and you're embarrassed about what you allowed. So to report the abuser, you have to admit all of that. You have to tell complete strangers things that you don't want anyone in the entire universe to know. It's hard. It's a lot for sexual assault victims to come forward. And it's one of the only crimes where you owe an explanation. And I had a wise psychologist tell me after I'd gotten out, he said, did you tell your husband everything? And I said, yeah, I told him everything because I'm real conscientious and that's just, I'm real honest. And he said, well, that's a shame because the first thing I do when I sit down with couples in these type of situations is to tell the spouse that your wife was a victim of a crime and do crime victims owe explanations to anyone about the crime committed against them. No, we don't think that way in any other type of crime except for sexual assault. Yeah. Anyway, I'll get off that soapbox. Oh, I know. I think that's really important. I love that. I love that so much. I am so tired of the victim becoming the person that has to explain herself over and over and over and over and over again. Yeah. And I went to a couple attorneys about criminal charges. Well, actually, the medical board investigator told me I might have strong enough case for a criminal charge. But the advice I got was, well, number one, therapist abuse is not illegal in my state. It is in 32 states. It's not illegal? No. 
it's it's unethical. All therapists know this. Wow. The damage done in these relationships with power differentials like pastors, congregants, you know, teacher, student, therapist, client is so immense that there needs to be legislation protecting you. They said, don't pursue criminal charges. It will destroy you and your family and he will likely walk. Yeah. (laughs) Perpetrators tend to get away over and over and over again. Yeah. And can you imagine now? I hate saying this because I know your listeners already have issues with therapists and we'll talk more about that later. But can you imagine the victim pool that a mental health professional has? And if the if the poor patient tries to tell, they can claim you're mentally ill. <laughs> that's why I'm yeah. so angry. And that's why I wrote my book is because That is such a vulnerable population. You have to be vulnerable in therapy for therapy to work. You don't have to be mentally ill to be vulnerable in therapy. Um, It's just the nature of it. And so it's so sad that group isn't protected in every state with legislation because, you know, we protect children and the elderly, but adults are taken advantage of all the time, all the time. And then you're bad for allowing them to take advantage of you. I hate that part, right? Oh, I know. You shouldn't allow that. You should have been strong. I mean, I hear that. It gets me so angry. I know a couple of attorneys that weren't educated in this area just shamed me even worse. And they just said, why'd you go back? Yeah. 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 And that is what's so hard for victims is that trauma bonding and and gaslighting and all of that, it's so confusing and it's such a web that you don't see being woven that once, you, and then all of a sudden you're trapped and it's confusing even to us. Right. Psychological manipulation is, it's powerful, but people minimize it. You know, if, if there's not a gun to your head, then they don't understand, you know, how you should have been controlled. Right. But we know mind control is a huge thing happens all the time with these cults and yeah well and he had my control over you he had you so confused you didn't know what was up and what was down and then I mean he was even making you think you had parts yeah I mean because the way he described it is you can have multiple parts and not know it so maybe we all have them and and it was all on this weird spiritual level and I honestly didn't know if I was having actual spiritual healing experiences or if it was all a joke. I didn't ever really know what was going on. I was so confused. It was like he pulled me into this alter universe. And, you know, as it gets weirder and weirder, and and there's other ways they isolate you, but pretty soon your wor- world is really small and it's just you and the abuser because you've stopped sharing things with outside people because they just wouldn't understand. They just wouldn't get it. And then when they make their first you know, big move against you, there isn't anybody left. Um, and so you end up, as I did, turning to the abuser for comfort for the abuse they're causing you. Because there's nobody else in your this weird, twisted little world that they've created that gets it. So it, another it was, red flag is your world shrinking. So was he trying yeah. to get you not to trust every, other people or how did he shrink it? For example, he'd place little seeds of doubt that my spouse couldn't really be there for me in the way he could. 
Um, there was one time I had this, what I thought was a spiritual experience because all of the therapy was supposedly ordained by God and spiritual experiences. And I wanted to share it with my pastor and he shot that idea down really quick. And I remember it confused me because I thought, well, isn't a pastor the perfect one to share a spiritual experience with? So, but again, I filed that away as, okay, well, maybe, maybe he's just trying to protect me. Maybe I would come across sounding weird. So I didn't share it. And they also are manipulating your outside world. He would try to get all of his victims to attend his church. Therefore, he could make big public displays of affection there so that if you tried to say anything, you know, people would say, oh, he's just kind of like that. He's just touchy-feely. But yes, they will do things like, my sessions ended up going to two hours long. Well, at first that was scary. Then I loved it and thought I needed it. And I didn't think it was sinister, but I didn't want anyone to know how embarrassing. So I would share less and less of these little details because it's almost, it like becomes like a little club. It's like when you start hearing yourself, when you're in a relationship like this and you start hearing yourself more and more saying other people wouldn't get it. I mean, they just don't understand. They haven't been in therapy and they don't really get the attachment you form and, and they wouldn't get it. They wouldn't understand. You could be slipping into some dangerous territory there. And therapy is personal and you don't want to share all the private details with everyone that you're sharing in therapy. But now I know that you have to maintain a couple, not just one, but a couple lifelines outside of therapy to keep yourself safe. Because when my world did get small, the only other person on the outside that I was close to was the pastor's wife who recommended the abusive therapist. So when I went to her with red flags, she blew them off and minimized them. And then when I told her that I was assaulted, she took his side. And instead of going to somebody else, I was crushed. And I just retreated inward and remembered my childhood where no one believed me then either. And nobody fought for me then either. And nobody stood up for me. And I just went inward. And then guess who's left? The abuser. So you've got to keep your inner circle a little bit bigger. And you have to tell and continue to tell until you're heard. Because I guarantee you, I would have come across someone that was healthy enough, that didn't have an agenda like she did, that would have listened to me. But I let that first rejection defeat me. Sure. And kind of think, well, no one's going to believe me. And, and it's so bad anyway, what I've allowed. And it's so embarrassing that my therapist sits next to me and I have two hour sessions and then you just decide you're just to fix it yourself and not tell anybody else. Right. What other red flags did you see? With therapist, you should see them for 45 minutes to one hour once a week, period. Maybe there'll be an occasion when you need to see them more than once a week, but the goal should then be to get to the point where you can resume once a week. There shouldn't be any outside contact. He would call me on his cell phone and, you know, pray with me or tell me something that he thought of. Um, if they contact you outside of sessions, well, some therapists will, will allow you to call them in case of emergency, and some might need to call you for scheduling reasons. That is it. Um, they should not share anything with you about their personal life, just 
barely enough to form a bond with you and connect with you so that you can feel safe and comfortable. But you should not ever know anything personal about them. They should remain a blank slate. And so that's another huge red flag because what predators will do is they'll slowly start interjecting more and more about themselves because as a client, you crave that because you're sharing everything in your world with this other person. You wish they could be more than just a therapist that you pay. You wish they could just be a real person that cares about you and like share a little bit about themselves, you know, make it feel more like a real relationship. And it feels good to the client at the time, but it is dangerous and it will hurt you in the end. And therapists know this, they're trained and they learn this in school. Um, so that is another red flag. Um, he stopped charging me for sessions. Um, but I thought, well, just till my insurance kicks back in, it's just for a couple months. It's not a big deal, but that is a huge red flag. Um, because guess what happened then? Then I felt indebted. Um, like, well, well, these sessions are benefiting me. I mean, I'm not paying, like, I hope they benefit him a little. Um, your therapist shouldn't be your responsibility ever. You shouldn't know if they're having a bad day. You shouldn't know if they're struggling with something. You shouldn't know about their marital problems. You should be 100% the center of therapy. Um, other red flags. I kind of said this already, but dual relationship is huge. Therapists know that this is a big no-no, but dual relationship is when they play two roles with you, like therapist and maybe mother figure or father figure, like he did with me. He played father figure or therapist and friend or therapist and partner. Um, you shouldn't be doing anything with them outside of therapy. Um they cannot be your savior. They cannot be your mother or father figure. It is damaging to clients when they go there. And that may feel wonderful at the time and feel like that's exactly what you've always wanted was a parent figure that you never had. And yes, they can care about you. And yes, they can be a safe person. And yes, they can, you know, be a parent in that regard. But as far as providing the nurturing, whether it's through words or physical touch, that is an absolute no-no. What happens, and, and I hear this happen all the time with victims, the therapist, I don't know whether they're a narcissist or not, but they swoop in and play the savior and they hold their clients and cuddle with their clients and hold their hands and rub their hair and get, talk to them as if they're young and just, oh, you, you're the daughter I never had. And you're, you know, the connection that we share. And then guess what happens? You know, they're crippling these poor patients emotionally and then when therapy ends they don't even know how to function or they'll just drop them suddenly after creating this intense intense bond i hear about that i either hear about the sexual predator or the let me save you abuser and they're both damaging bringing up physical contact they might hug you they might give you a handshake that is it. A lot of therapists will not engage in physical touch at all. It triggers too much in the patient. It triggers, there's something in therapy called transference where you start feeling everything, you start feeling intense childhood feelings towards your therapist. They become, you know, the kind of source for all this emotion that you're having. They're not the real source, but they do feel like it. And so it creates a really strong attachment. And an ethical therapist 
will help you see that and help you see that they aren't really the source of your your longing and your and your feelings and they will guide you towards you know self-sufficiency and graduating from therapy one day and an unethical therapist will be you know more like let me be that person you've never had kind of thing right you know emails phone calls texts oh it is just i just cringe because there's so many therapists that are doing that um what else there's more blatant things, but I think people recognize those, you know, like talking about other clients and breaking your anonymity in public and things like that. The things that I really like to warn people about are the things that feel good at the time, like physical touch could, not in a creepy way, but if they're just comforting you, um, you know, with a light touch on the arm or rubbing your back, and but then it becomes a little bit more and a little bit more. It feels good at the time and it doesn't really feel sinister. and Oh, this is a huge one. Huge. They should never, ever, ever single you out in any way as being special or more special than any of their other clients. It could be, you're like the daughter I never had. We have this soul connection that I've just never experienced. Um, and this doesn't have to be sexual, you know, it could just be emotional. Um, my therapist told me, Knowing I had adoption in my background and I had abandonment and I had abuse, he told me he had adopted me. Well, that felt amazing, but then it increased my dependency. And then it made me like more like neurotic, like, well, I want to be his favorite, not just one of the clients he adopted. You know, ethical therapists will help you with that intensity. You know what I mean? An unethical therapist will increase it, um, will manipulate your attachment to them. Every single victim, at least of therapist abuse and often clergy abuse that I've spoken with, thought they were special. And we all thought we were the only one. So, you know, it doesn't really seem that sinister and evil when you have an amazing connection or a bond with someone, which they couldn't help that, right? That just sometimes comes along once in a lifetime. You just have these amazing connections and you have a special and unique bond. I think deep down, we all kind of long for that and that feels good to all of us, which is why it's so sinister. But that is a common, a commonality in all of us. And I think all victims are devastated and shocked and feel stupid when they realize we were a number. It was a playbook. There were hundreds of us that used the same lines with all of us. None of us were special. Not only are we not special, we were just a pawn in a game. We meant nothing to them. And the other thing that I just thought of that's important is, as far as healing is, we became attached. We feel stupid. How could we become attached to a sociopath or a narcissist or an abuser. Well, we weren't attached to them at all. We were attached to the role that they were playing, to the image they were portraying, to the mirage. It was never real at all. That person that we were attached to never even existed. And it's somebody that they make up and they tailor to each individual victim. That's what we were attached to. And again, it's almost like being given a taste of a drug. It's hard to walk away from. 
I th- I love the the red flags to look for. In in therapy, it's important to know what the red flags are, because when you come from any abuse, it's hard to feel safe with a therapist. So knowing what to look for, I think everybody should know. And so I appreciate you coming and sharing those. And then also to know who you should feel safe with. So if you have a therapist, we shouldn't be afraid of every therapist out there. No. Because if we listen to your list and say, wait a minute, my therapist isn't hitting any of these red flags. You can sit back and go, okay, I can relax a little bit and trust that I have a safe therapist. Yeah, and this isn't the case with all abusive therapists, but a sexual predator is going to have to find ways to begin to remove clothing. And it was interesting that the first thing that my abuser did, because he was wearing a full suit and tie, so is he took his shoes off at the beginning of a session without saying anything. And I just felt a panic in my stomach, like, what is he doing? And then the critic in my mind kicked in, it's shoes. Does it matter? Like, You've been coming here for 10 months or whatever, and he's taking off his shoes. He wants to be more comfortable, like it's not a big deal. But then, you know, later I was listening to a video to volunteer at my church for um, sexual abuse warning signs. And it said a slow removal of clothing. And I thought, oh my gosh, I wonder because, and this is while I was in it, but kind of starting to be unsure because the shoes came off and then you know, the belt. And again, I was like, and he tried to do it in kind of a sneaky way. In fact, I looked away because I thought, oh, I made him feel embarrassed. He was just trying to get more comfortable, you know, and, but that's another one to watch out. That's incredible. And they will have to find a way to physically get closer to you. So there was an Ottoman that sat in between us. And I think he offered that thing every day for six months. And I never, I never wanted it. I felt uncomfortable. I'm in therapy. Like I'm not going to kick back and put my feet up like I'm at the movies. And, but finally, you know, I got more relaxed and comfortable going that I finally said, yes, I'll put my feet on the ottoman. And so I got my, I have my tennis shoes up there on the ottoman and in the middle of a conversation that he and I are having in a really awkward way, he started to put his socked foot on the ottoman. So that is how he introduced that. And again, I told myself, calm down. Oh my God, his foot might have accidentally touched your foot. Like, calm down. Like, you are way oversensitive. Um, And then I got used to it and then I liked it. And then I said, can I take off my shoes? You know, thinking it's nice to be more relaxed. So yeah, those are just two other things that they have to do. There's certain things they have to start doing from the beginning. Oh, and another, then he had to get closer to me. So he came over and um, got a Kleenex and pretended to dab my tears with a Kleenex in a comforting way. And it felt a little embarrassing, but it felt soothing. Then he acted as if he was uncomfortable sitting on the ottoman in front of me. And so I said, asked him if he'd sit next to me. So anything that happened after that, I thought was my fault. Because I asked him to sit next to me. But did I ask him to come to my side of the office? Absolutely not. Never in my wildest dreams would I have ever asked him to come near me, but he came into my space. And then I, that's another way they 
it's like a puppet master. They, he was using me to manipulate, you know, myself. Yeah. He knew how to do it. Yeah. He was using me in the game against me. Right. They're masterminds. I don't know. I don't know, like we were saying earlier, how they learn all this, but. But they do, and they almost all do it the same way. There almost really is a playbook because so many survivors have said, oh my gosh, my abuser said almost the exact same thing, or it sounds just like mine. And so. Which in, in as horrific as that is, we can then glean that information to make these red flags to make other people safer. So their playbook helps us to find who they are and to put these things in place so that we can make lists and say, hey, everybody, look out for this. And because everybody in this community needs therapists and it's so hard to find a good one and, and everybody's afraid, how do I know if they're safe or not? This makes us safer. This is good information to have. So the playbook that they're all aligned with, however they get it, we can now take that and use it as information to make us safer. Right. And this is the thing that gets me too, because we were talking about how low our self-esteem is when we're abused and we're kids. My intuition, my gut instincts were spot on, spot on. I recognized every single one of the red flags, but I didn't think I had the right to even see them as a red flag or even question you know, someone in authority or someone like him to even question that maybe he would be doing something, you know, questionable. And, and then to make it worse, they weren't really bad things. Right. But my, my insides told me every single time. Right. And so we can really count on that. We, we know it's then what we do with it. Then we minimize it. Then we rationalize it. Then we explain it away or then we file it away in the back of our minds as well. Because there were some things towards the end where I was like, I don't even know what to do with that. I just have, I'm just going to pretend he didn't say that because I don't even know what to do because I'm so attached that I need this to be what I think it is. I cannot allow this new information in because it's going to rattle this whole pretend sense of safety that I have here. You know, they get you so attached that then when, you know, they make bigger moves and they start doing things that you do know are hurtful to you. You know, you want to resist that. There's something called cognitive dissonance, and it means that we have vastly different feelings or beliefs towards someone or something at the same time, conflicting beliefs. It's just like with children. My parent cannot be a monster because I need them as a parent. Therefore, I'm going to accept the blame or I'm going to explain away their behavior. We do the same thing. Um, I had what I thought was an almost all good, safe, nurturing relationship. So when a few bigger red flags started coming in, you know, I, I didn't know how to have those at the same time. And I didn't want those to be real. I wanted what, what I thought I had to be real. So I, so I blew them off or, or blamed them. And then when they were serious enough, I did tell. And if I had just gone to one more person, you know, I might've, been able to get out sooner. So 
don't just stop at the first rejection you get. Because you may be talking to somebody that's less healthy than you are, that has sexual abuse in their background or has different kinds of abuse in their background, and they won't be able to make the determination or validate you, I should say. What would you like to say to somebody who's listening that is in that place right now where they're being abused by their therapist? I would say that, and this is coming from all the survivors I've spoken with, I know it feels, I know it might feel loving and nurturing. I know it might feel like you can't survive without the relationship. I know you feel like, you know, it's all you have or you're so dependent now you can't leave. And I know that you don't see the abuse in that, but they are crippling you emotionally more and more so that you cannot function outside of that relationship. And that is not, not okay. And a, and a healthy, loving therapist would not put you in that spot. They would not create a dependency that's so strong that, that if, when they're gone, you don't know how to function. And for, you know, the sexual predators, you know, really both, but I know you think you're special and I know you think you're the only one, but we all did. And I know you feel like you're partly participating. I know you might feel like you brought it on. I know I thought, well, I was so needy that he had to swoop in as a father figure. And if I wasn't so needy, that wouldn't have happened. Um, but therapists know this. They know boundaries and they know what is harmful to you and what is not. None of these actions are loving and they are not your fault. And if you tell, you are not telling on yourself, even though it does feel that way. Yes, it will be embarrassing at first. And yes, it feels shameful. And yes, you won't understand how to answer why you stayed so long or why you allowed what you allowed. But tell anybody, because I could not break the chain. I could not break, break the hold he had on me without telling. I tried that. I said, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to get out on my own. No one's going to know. And it didn't work. And I was just there for more abuse. So. I had to tell. And even when I told and I had someone sit with me during my next session, I could feel the doctor called nine times. I could feel myself caving. The emotional hold is so strong. And it took me months for that attachment to go. And that's okay. It will fade. Um, and you're not doing the wrong thing by reporting. So many of us feel like I feel guilty hurting them or ruining their lives. Well, guess what? They didn't just slip up and have a relationship with us. And there was no magical connection that we had with them. We are one of probably hundreds. And they're going to continue to hurt people after you. That's a lot of one thing I'd like to say. But that's powerful. Now you sued him in one. Yes. Uh, the medical board believed me and and he had his license taken away and I filed a civil suit. I finally found a very um, skilled attorney who specialized in nothing but therapist and clergy abuse. And it took three years. There was some stress involved, but I felt good that I was doing something to fight for myself. And that was the only avenue of justice available to me. And it was part of my healing to fight for myself. So I was glad that I did it. It doesn't, and it was successful. 
But, you know, when it came down to it, I was suing the insurance company that he had. Malpractice insurance wasn't even really about him. Um, and it was really all just about money. And it's just a business transaction. You know, when at the end of the day, in other words, I was treated horribly by the defense attorney because he's just trying to not have to pay malpractice. And I had a six hour deposition and it was just awful. But anyway, I'm really glad that I that I went through with that because I deserve to fight for myself. And we don't have very many avenues of justice available to us because the right. criminal system usually fails in that, at least in that area. I'm really glad you did that. That's impressive. Yeah. Because there comes a point, if there is an avenue that we can take and that we take it, I think that's powerful. Yeah, because it's just not okay. You just don't get to do whatever you want with human beings and then pretend to retire and go on with your life. I mean, yeah, he lost his license, but he was old um, and he was a doctor. So I don't think it would bankrupt him. And he wasn't even paying me a penny, you know, it was his insurance company. So, yeah. Well, where can they find your book? What's the title? It's Preyed Upon. And I'm just about to rework the subtitle, but right now it's Preyed Upon Breaking Free from Therapist Abuse. And they can go to my website and find it. They can find it on Amazon. It's in paperback, ebook, and audible. Um, or audiobook, and then the paperback is available wherever books are sold. So like barnesandnoble.com, walmart.com. And what is your website? www.amynordhues.com, A-M-Y-N-O-R-D-H-U-E-S. Okay, I'll put that in the show notes and a link to your book. And I just really appreciate you coming on. And, and I'm hoping that this will not make people more worried about going to therapists, but that it will bring comfort. Then with knowledge comes the ability to walk more safely. Yes, and I am pro-therapy, and I did eventually see a very ethical male therapist, which some people might be wow. Yeah, It was so comforting to go in, do the work, pay, and leave. No relationship. I don't know if he liked me. I don't know if I liked him. I didn't care. I could just go in, do the work I needed and leave. And it was just, it was just really nice. Wow. That's the way it should be. Absolutely the way it should be. You don't have to go. The therapist doesn't have to be robotic and they can, they certainly will be compassionate and you will want to know they care about you and that they're interested and that, you know, um, but you'll know, I think you'll feel it in your gut when it crosses that line. Um, and like I said, stay connected to somebody on the outside that can watch out for you. And if you have dissociated parts, you know that you do. And if you don't have dissociated parts, you know that you don't. Correct. So that's good to know, too. And don't and let anybody push you into either camp. Right. And the whole evil thing, you know, that's a whole nother podcast, but he doesn't have any magical powers to be able to look into me and see that I have evil. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's just ridiculous. Yeah. So I really appreciate you coming today and sharing your story with us. And I am so sorry that that happened to you. It should not happen to anybody. I it should be safe always in therapy. I agree. So go grab her book. It's, I've been listening to it on Audible. Fascinating. 
fascinating. And uh, unfortunately, it's not just Amy's story. It happens all over the place. So uh, it's important to be forewarned and to know what these red flags are and to be watching for them. And then to know if you have a good therapist just to relax and feel safe there when they are safe. Right. So thank you so much. God bless you, Amy. Thank you. Only God could rescue me. Only God could set me free. Only God.